Welcome to the podcast of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Greenwood, Mississippi. We are a community of Christians that exists to make disciples of Jesus Christ and influence the Delta for the glory of God. More information about Westminster can be found at www.wpcgreenwood.org. Um, and if you're staying in here with us, I invite you to open your uh, Bibles or uh, app bulletin uh, to Luke 15. Um, also want to thank the big shout out to the Edwards for taking care of all the kids uh, while we're in here uh, for the next hour. Just kidding. Probably next 30 minutes. Um, hey, as we're, as we're transitioning here, let's, uh, let's pray um, and then we'll dive in. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, you, your word tells us uh, that the horse is made ready for battle, but the victory belongs to you. Uh, Lord, I, I've done all that I can do uh, to, to prepare this sermon. So Lord, now I ask that you would come and that you would, that you would claim the victory. Uh, Lord, that through your spirit, uh, Lord, you would take um, your word and then thoughts uh, of me as, a, as a, a frail and broken man. And Lord, that you would use it to, to pierce hearts. Uh, Lord, that you use even the foolishness of preaching uh, to reach your people. So, Lord, forgive the one who teaches his sins, for they are many. Uh, may you bless and keep each of us uh, during this next time. And we ask this in Christ. Amen. So this morning we're going a little rogue, uh, though on the surface this may not seem like a resurrection passage. I, I, I hope by the time we're done that we'll all see, no, this actually may be one of the most powerful pointers to the resurrection Jesus ever taught. And I know this is a favorite for many of you, uh, the parable of the prodigal son. Uh, so but before we read, and this is such a well-known passage, before we read it, let me, let me say just a few things, okay? A few things to be aware of. Anytime this passage is read or taught, it's very easy to slip into this judgmental attitude, to hear about the, the wild and free, wayward younger brother leaving the father, leaving the church, and not find ourselves thinking about people that we know, maybe family members that we know who fit that bill. And at the same time, it's easy to, to read about the older brother in this parable and think, yep, I know a whole lot of professing, quote, Christians whose noses are so stuck up in the air that they can't even see where they're going. Okay, well, before we might find ourselves tempted to size each other up, let's, two things just to, to remember. One, Throughout life, we will all find ourselves tempted to be in either of these camps, right? To be the younger brother running wild and free from God, right? Saying, God, we don't want anything to do with you. And leaving. Um, and at the same time, we can, we have the, some of us have the tendency to stay and yet miss the gospel while growing bitter. And we say, God, look, I'm going to do my duty. I'm not leaving, but I'm not happy about it. So both brothers, both, both types or archetypes of people miss the gospel. Both fail to see the love of their father. Okay, so that's the first thing. You know, we, we could probably in both of these groups in various times in our life. Second thing is before we size others up, typically it's the younger brother who gets kind of the lion's share of the attention here, right? After all, it is the, the parable is literally called the parable of the prodigal son. And so often we think that the biggest issue in the church or the biggest issue in the world is like these wild, wayward sinners, right? 
And so we spend all of our time talking about them, thinking about them. However, if we look at the context of Jesus' teaching, we see that two groups of people were gathering around Jesus to hear him teach. Uh, one group we were going to find were tax collectors and sinners, yet those, the wild and wayward sinners, those, the people who wouldn't darken the door of a synagogue and probably wouldn't darken the door of many churches today, those were the people who were drawn to Jesus like a moth to a flame. Okay? So far, so good. Jesus has no issue with that. No issue with the tax collectors or sinners. Okay, but, but then there's a second group that also gathered around Jesus to hear him. And, and this was the group of, you could call them the uptight religious types of people, the, the Pharisees and scribes. And this group had little to no interest in hearing what Jesus was teaching as much as they were there to grumble and, and to judge. And we're going to hear what they said. Is, Can you believe that this man would actually, he actually talks and eats with the likes of these wild and wayward sinners, people who won't even come to our church? And it was to that, it was to that attitude that Jesus started teaching. Okay, which means this whole teaching, this whole parable we're about to read is ultimately geared towards the sinful attitude of the older brother, the religious do-gooders, okay? And, and so before we start naming or thinking about prodigals in our head, realize <laughs> Jesus is going after your heart too, okay? He's going after my heart. And actually, the climax of this story is not the prodigal son returning home to the father that, like we think it is. No, the, the climax of this entire teaching is is the father's powerful plea to the older brother to truly see the love of the father, to remember the love of the father. And, and so one of the reasons we're exploring this parable on Easter, let's just be honest, is because Easter is probably the one Sunday of the year in which we have the largest gathering of both types of these people in one place, okay? Older brothers and younger brothers. So what better time to talk about the parable, right? And then, then finally, um, before we read, we, we typically think of prodigal, uh, the prodigal as someone who's disobedient, who's in rebellion, they're, they're living wild and free, free and easy away from God. Okay, um, but that is not what prodigal means. Um, I know many of you know this, but the word prodigal literally means lavish, extravagant, over the top, wasteful. So what he's saying is that is, those are all the, the adjectives that describe how the younger brother ran. That his running and his rebellion was extra. It was over the top. It was extravagant, wasteful. Okay. Well, with that definition of prodigal in mind, in describing the greatness of God, A.W. Tozer said, because God is self-existent, his love had no beginning. Because he is eternal, his love can have no end. Because he is infinite, it has, has no limit. Because he is holy, it is the quintessence of all spotless purity. Because he is immense, his love is incomprehensibly vast, bottomless, shoreless sea. It's almost like any time we as humans try to describe the love of God, we find that we don't possess the vocabulary palette to do so. And so what are we just saying? It's Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. What was it? Vast, unmeasured, boundless, free. In other words, God's love is lavish. It is over the top. It is extra. One Christian singer recently even called it reckless. Okay. 
In other words, his love for his people is prodigal. Which means, though this parable is called the prodigal son, the main takeaway for all of us this morning is our God is the prodigal God. Okay. And so with that, let's dive in and briefly explore this just master class of Jesus on the love of God to his people. Okay. So Luke 15, we're going to read the first three verses for the context and then skip down to the parable. This is God's word. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing to hear, near to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So Jesus told them this parable, verse 11. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. The father divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country where he squandered his property in reckless, there's that prodigal word, reckless living. And when he went, and when he had spent everything, a severe famine rose in the country and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, so who went, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose And came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And his father ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead. And he is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was also in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked, well, what, what, are these, what do these things mean? And he said to him, your brother has come. And your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But the older brother was angry. And refused to go into the party. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you. I have never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It is fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is God's good word to us. Uh, Just three points this morning as we walk through this uh, briefly. Um, We're going to look through the younger brother, the older brother, and then our prodigal God. Okay. So first... Jesus, he begins with the unthinkable. The younger son had been, he'd been raised in, you know, by a good father. 
Uh, he had known some of the Father's love, received the Father's grace, but it never clicked. All he knew was he couldn't wait to, to spread his wings and get as far away from his father as possible, far away from his family as possible. And back then, to go to your still healthy father and to say, listen, Dad, I, I, want, I want to go ahead and get my share of the inheritance. Um, back then, that was considered, it, it, it was the epitome of disrespect. It, was, it would be the equivalent of spitting in your father's face and, and saying, I wish you were dead. It would be to go up to your dad and say, look, I want your stuff, but I don't want you. Well, despite the, the humiliation and the pain of rejection, the father gave his son his inheritance, which likely would have been land. And the fact that the younger brother left so quickly implies that he sold it, we'll say hastily, likely not getting top dollar on, on that property. And then he went to a far country living high on the hog, right? Fancy clothes, lavish parties, all the, all the friends' money could buy. I mean, this is like a story that's happened a million times, right? The prodigal life was the great life for him. But he ran into the problem. Everyone faces who tries to pursue life while running from God. Um, you find that it's just not possible. You know, at some point, at some point the distraction runs out. Now, his money, his money ran out. Coupled with God's providence of, of sending famine into the land, all of these things happening all at once, has your life ever been wrecked? All of a sudden, he, he has been graciously wrecked by God. And yet, even then, this prodigal still wasn't broken enough to see his need of grace. He still thinks he's going to fix it. And so, he, he's not to the bottom of himself. And so, this one-time... Uh, landowner's son. I mean, this is, he's like Delta Blue Blood, Hebrew Blue Blood. He has to make himself a servant of a Gentile. And then to make matters worse, his job was, he went from living high on the hog to like now his job is feeding hogs. And it wasn't until there, uh, he's in the pig pen, pondering, maybe I should eat this pig slop. It doesn't look so bad. It was there that grace settled in the low place. And he came to his senses, and he said, whoa, 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 my father's servants have it better than this. And so with a, a truly repentant heart, he started getting his speech together of what he would tell his dad as he started walking home. And I love what Steve Brown said. He said, children will run from the law, and they will run from grace. The ones who run from law never come back, but the ones who run from grace always come back. Grace always it, grace draws its own back home. And yet even then, we see, even with this repentant heart, he still didn't quite get the, the depths of his father's love, right? Because he believed that his father would receive him back, but never as a fully forgiven son. He didn't think it was possible for him to be anything other than a servant, a hired servant of his father. He didn't get it. And so that's why the father, it's almost like the father cut off his repentance. He, he received some of the forgive, the, his repentance but he cut it off, and he, was just, he went to, to such extreme, uh, lavish extremes. Uh, you know, he was watching for him. And though no patriarch ran, it was so undignified. This one, he threw aside his dignity, and he ran. He embraced his son, kissed him, and then gave him a new robe, likely the father's best robe, threw it on his back, put a ring on his finger, symbolizing that, that you are my beloved son. You are in the family. Killed the fatty calf through a party, saying, verse 24, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost, 
and he's found. Let's party. All right. Well, in all the commotion, Jesus tells us that there was a, also a second son in the family, uh, the older son. And he walked in from the field. He heard the party, and he said, as you can imagine, whoa, 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 whoa what's all this? And the servant said, well, your, your brother's back, and your dad's throwing him this party to welcome your brother home. And at that, the older brother lost it. And then humiliated his father by refusing to go into the party. And he, he wanted no part in celebrating a sinner who'd come home. Because while the baby had ran off and, and lived free and easy, he had stayed. And we know, these, we know people like this, right? He had been the dependable one, right? And there had been no parties in his life, no music, no dancing, no joy. It was just duty. He was, he was doing the next thing. And we see here that, that he too failed to see the goodness of his father, right? We see that even he was, he was so distant and so self-righteous that he never experienced the abundant resources that were his. We see that he too, all he wanted was a party from his father. And he forgot that, that the true delight is like, your father is, loves you. Delighting in the father himself, he, he did not get that. As Mark Twain said, he was a, quote, good man, in the worst sense of the word. We probably know several of these good men in the worst sense of the word. And something he said was telling of his heart. You realize throughout the parable, no one said, no one said that the, the younger brother wasted all of his money with prostitutes. The older brother said that. Okay? Kent Hughes argues that that could have been <laughs> the older brother's heart shining through. Namely that he wished he could be the one who blew his life away with prostitutes. He, he wishes he could be the one who have run, ran and got away with it like his little brother. And so here we see it's possible to leave the father without leaving the farm, isn't it? We know this is possible to leave God without leaving the church, which, by the way, those are the deadliest kind of church members. To think we're good people because we've, we've managed to avoid the sins of passion, you know, the more scandalous sins, the sex, drugs, rock and roll type, type variety of sins. All the while, the sins of attitude, right? Those sins of jealousy and pride and judgmentalism and partiality can be alive and well uh, in our hearts and in our church. Westminster and, and friends, how easy is it to think like the older brother when it comes to God? To say, God, all these years, I've done more and I've tried harder and I've volunteered my time and I've given to, you know, to relief efforts. We're, we're, we're working in the Delta. And what have you given me? It's just another way of saying, like, we don't want you, God. We just want what you can give me. Far from delighting in the love of God, we can start thinking that God, he's a real stickler. I tell you, God, God, he's a harsh taskmaster that we slave for. And when we view God like that, just like the older brother, it always comes out. It's like you just thought so-and-so, whoever it is, so-and-so was that cranky member of the church, always grumbling. You just thought it was that, like that bitter middle-aged man who can't throw the football like he thought he could in high school. Right? You just thought some Christians were just mean people, when in reality they're cranky and bitter because they have a false view of God. They think God is hard, and so by golly, in turn, they're going to be hard. Where's their ring? Where's my party? And of course, 
knowing nothing of the grace of God, these people are unable to give it. I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine what would have happened if the younger brother, as he's coming in, if he met the older brother first instead of meeting the good, good father first? Can you imagine how that would have gone? Older brother saying, so you've, you've come with your tail tucked between your legs, huh? Well, you should. You should after what you've done. Listen, I, I don't know what you're thinking, but you're not welcome here. Do you, do you realize all the, all the crap you've done? You don't belong. You broke your father's heart. You disgraced all of us. Get out of my face and get out of the church. You don't belong. Like, can you see really how lethal that could be to a congregation? <laughs> to have the loudest spokespeople of our church be the very people who don't understand the gospel themselves. And sometimes those are the very people that somehow, I don't know why, they find themselves on the diaconate and they find themselves getting on the elder board. And, and talk about running a church into the ground like that. Did I mention that those who cross their arms and refuse to get out on that dance floor and celebrate sinners who have come home are the ones who receive the harshest condemnation from Jesus? It's the self-righteous Pharisees, right? And so maybe this is just a little aside, but you know, I know that there's always this tendency you know, when people who have you know, are, they've sinned, we all know it, and they've repented and they're coming back in, and there's always this tendency to just like, I ain't, I ain't, I ain't getting on the dance floor to celebrate that person. Do you know what that person did? I am not doing that. But this is really, you know, the, the gospel of God's grace says, you know what, when, when a sinner comes home, Despite how you feel, get on the dance floor, please. Get on the dance floor and celebrate that. Because maybe he's gonna, that, that, that sinner is going to be on the dance floor celebrating you when you're finally broken of your pride. Get on the dance floor. Soren Kierkegaard said, The greatest tragedy is for someone to profess to know God and yet clearly in the depth of their being not trust him as father. Wow, right? So there are different ways of being in a far country. True joy isn't found in running from God, nor is it found in bitterly slaving away in his fields. And this is so insidious. That's why Sinclair Ferguson said, he said that I and we, like we all need to be persuaded in our hearts that in Jesus, the Father is reaching out of heaven and holding onto our hearts and saying, my son, my daughter, Everything I have is yours. Everything I have is yours. All right, well, let's try and start closing out uh, with our last point, God's prodigal love here. And we miss it unless we see the father's love going out to both sons, the older and the younger. And hopefully it's, it's become more obvious why this is the perfect Easter passage. It's something that the father said twice, verse 24 and 32. He said, For this my son was dead, and he's alive again. He, is, he was lost and is found. All right, what if I told you this isn't just a parable? That Jesus is pointing us to something else, right? That, that God has this same lavish, over-the-top, we could even say reckless love for you. And given the date, Easter, you could probably imagine how we see that, how we see God's prodigal love. Um, I, I hope this illustration works, but we're going to go for it, okay? 
Um, so Toyota, y'all may have seen the recent ads, Toyota has this new car that they're releasing in North America called the Toyota Crown. Have y'all seen this? It's one of those like kind of hybrid-y types cars. Toyota Crown. And it's largely unknown to North America, but apparently the Crown has this long, long history in, in Toyota world. And, and so, um, in fact, you could argue it's that the Crown is central to everything about Toyota. So the guys from the Throttle House YouTube channel, they review cars. They, they said this. They said, picture, it's 1955 Japan, and you're in the back of your dad's new car. It's a shiny new Toyota Crown. Japan's newest upmarket passenger vehicle. It's cute. It's luxurious. You're comfy. Well, fast forward. You're a teenager now. Your parents have raised you well, so you have a job helping a local businessman transport his wares. To do that, you're using a utility pickup truck. That truck is also called a Toyota Crown. As a few years pass by, your, employee has paid your, well, your employer has paid you well. It's 1973. It's time to impress. So enough with the crowns. You've got your own money now. It's time to spend it on a two-door sports car. That two-door sports car, the Toyota Crown. <laughs> but you drive too fast and you get pulled over. The police car that pulls you over... A Toyota Crown. On your way home, you see a government official go by being driven in this nice town car. That town car he's being driven in, Toyota Crown. But then before you know it, you have kids. And the two-door coupe just isn't working anymore. It's time to leave the Crown life behind and get a station wagon. The answer, the new station wagon from Toyota, the Toyota Crown. So life is good, business is good, you keep switching up your car from crown to crown to crown, and occasionally your business takes you over to Hong Kong where you're driven around in a taxi. That taxi is also a, a Toyota crown. But a deal, I, I love how they end this, but a deal breaks through, the stress is just too much, and inevitably you die. <laughs> your family transports you to the funeral in a hearse, which you've probably guessed it by now, that hearse is also a, there you go, Toyota crown, isn't that something? But then you might say, but yeah, Toyota's also, they, they make other models. They don't always subscribe to this notion that everything must be a crown like the Toyota Corolla, except that means little crown in Latin, right? Or what about the Toyota Camry, which just means crown in Japanese? Uh, or what about the, I didn't know, the Toyota Corona, right? I know a lot of y'all know what, a, what Corona is, but there's also a Toyota Corona, uh, which also means crown. So there's the, the little crown, there's the crown, and then there's the crown crown, and then more recently, new to North America, the Toyota crown. Toyota apparently has always, always, always been about the crown. Okay. When the same way, I'm sure you know where I'm going with this, Christianity has always been about one thing. And it's not about you being a good boy or a good girl. Those are all just, those are downstream Christianity has always been about one thing, one event, in which we see God's prodigal love reaching out to you in full display. It's the death and resurrection of Jesus. You know, uh, Tim Keller says that Christianity is so unlike any other religion. In fact, when Christianity first appeared on the scene, the Romans called Christians atheists. You know that? It, 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 Christianity was seen as like the anti-religion. Because they would say, okay, well, well where's your temple? We're like, well, we don't have a temple. Okay, well, where's your priests make sacrifices? Well, we don't have priests. 
Okay, well, what do you do for sacrifices? Well, we don't have sacrifices. Jesus was, Jesus is the ultimate temple. Jesus is our ultimate priest. Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. It's all about Jesus. It's so different. The death and resurrection of Jesus. And so the father in this parable wasn't the only one who took humiliation on himself to display love. No, on the cross, we know that Jesus, Jesus threw aside his dignity and he died naked. He took our shame. He took our slapping of God in the face. He took our wish you were dead, God. He took our sin on himself and he died and was raised again so that all who were in him, coming, repentant to him, all who do that could, could know his forgiveness and be made new. And so because the resurrection, Paul, that famous verse in Romans 8, Paul says, we can say there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we love that verse, and we typically take it to mean that Jesus took the judgment of condemnation on himself so that we now, in Jesus, are no longer condemned. Jesus took the condemnation. We're no longer condemned, but we are forgiven. And so far, so good, right? But the problem with that is that as good as forgiveness is, forgiveness just gets you back to zero, right? And we don't see robes, rings, or ribs quite yet. We're not welcome into the family. But here's where things ratchet up a notch. In, in the Greek, that word condemnation not only conveys the idea of judgment because of that condemnation, but also the sentencing which follows that condemnation. Does that make sense? So here's what I mean. We all know that there's a difference between being forgiven of something and then actually being accepted back fully, right? I mean, how, we may forgive someone and, and move on, right? We'll forgive someone who wronged us, but we may not want to do, have anything to do with them the rest of our life. We'd be fine never even seeing them again. Okay, but that is how we can be as humans. The gospel tells us that is not how our prodigal God works. It's a reminder that God is not miserly with his grace. He not only forgives, but then he also puts a ring on our finger, a robe on our back, and he welcomes you in, not as the one who has blown it, but as his beloved. And so you are forgiven, and then that same identity is taken forward into your life. Okay? So because of the death and resurrection of Jesus... We could say then, there is therefore now no miserly grace to those who are in Christ Jesus. You know, it's that spirit of miserly grace, right? That we just don't think God's that gracious. It's that spirit of miserly grace that makes us unable to see the lavishness of his love. That make us say with the older, or that makes us unable to say, my son, my daughter, everything I have is yours. You're always with me. We cannot hear him say that. But his, his love is not miserly. And if we get that, it becomes irresistible. We'll come running home. And at the same time, we'll stop doing more and trying harder out of sheer duty. But we will follow Jesus out of delight. Because the joy is just having Jesus. So John Calvin, as we close, John Calvin said the first title of the Spirit is the spirit of sonship. That's the most beautiful thing that the spirit does. It's the spirit that comes into you and convinces you that you are a child of God. And you cry out, Abba, 
the spirit of sonship. He says that's what enables us not to say like the elder brother, look, all these years I've been slaving for you, but rather to say what the apostle John said, behold what love the Father has lavished on us, that you, that I, that we should be called daughters and sons of God. And by his grace, that is what we are. Amen? Amen. Well, happy Easter, friends. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that your love transcends our, our wild, crazy, lavish, sinful lifestyle. And at the same time, your, your prodigal love woos us in from our do more, try harder, go, go, go. And Lord, so may we see. May we see your prodigal grace, wherever, whatever category we're in, may we respond to your great love of Jesus dying on the cross and rising again so that now if we're in him, Jesus, like, like God, you look upon us and you see us as forgiven and beloved sons and daughters of the King. May that truth never, like, never leave us, but may it inform everything that we do. And we ask this in Christ's strong name. Amen. Hi, Richard Owens here. I just wanted to take a second to say thank you for listening to the podcast of Westminster Presbyterian Church. Our prayer is that the Lord would use this message to encourage you in the gospel and that you would find Jesus to be more beautiful than you ever, ever imagined. If you'd like to find out more about who Jesus is or more about our church, I invite you to visit our website at wpcgreenwood.org. God bless.